ultimately the work that I'm doing is, is meant to up level our consciousness. And we can take the meat away from an experience, which is powerful, and it honors the animal, but we could also take the lesson. I'm Luke Story. For the past 22 years, I've been relentlessly committed to my deepest passion, designing the ultimate lifestyle based on the most powerful principles of spirituality, health, psychology, and personal development. The Lifestylist Podcast is a show dedicated to sharing my discoveries and the experts behind them with you. I want to take a moment to share with you an incredible discovery that human beings have been using to improve their well-being for at least 3,000 years, and I'm one of those human beings. It's a plant medicine known as kava. Now, kava has been historically used by South Pacific Islanders as a safe, non-addictive alternative to drugs and alcohol because it naturally boosts the brain's main pleasure chemicals like GABA, serotonin, and dopamine, while at the same time, strangely increasing ketone production and mental energy. This means that it provides you with a relaxed sense of well-being, but also helps you focus. Now, most plant medicines will either speed you out and make you feel all tweaked, where you might be productive, but you don't necessarily feel happy, while others can bring you down and make you so relaxed you just want to fall asleep or sit in your ass all day. So kava is very unique in that it activates parts of our biology that help us to feel relaxed and focused at the same time. Now, as I said, it increases ketones, which also makes it an incredible tool for fasting. This is something you can add to your bulletproof coffee in the morning to enhance that calm and focused state. And also something you can supplement at night just to relax and chill. I mean, it does have... Uh, you know, somewhat of a recreational application if that's what you were going for. I love to use it at night when I'm just ready to stop working and wind down, getting ready to go to sleep, improve my deep sleep scores, etc. So Kava is incredible. And there's only one company I would trust when it comes to Kava. It's called True Kava. And you can find it at this website. It's gettruekava.com. That's G-E-T-T-R-U-K-A-V-A. GetTrueKava.com. While you're getting your chill on at GetTrueKava.com, you can save 15% off with the code LUKE15. Enjoy. Are you sitting there listening to this podcast feeling all gassy and bloated because the food that you ate today isn't going down right? Or maybe you're sick of supplements that don't work? If you're looking to make the move to improve your digestion and gut health, our sponsor Just Thrive is here to help. Imagine this, a probiotic that actually does what it's supposed to do. And when you find the right probiotic, the one that actually works, it's like winning the lottery. Trust me, I've wasted hundreds, if not thousands of dollars probably over the past 25 years on the latest and greatest probiotic that gave me a big womp womp after I bought it and used it. The Just Thrive Probiotic is different because it's the first and only 100% all-natural spore form DNA verified and tested probiotic supplement. In fact, as the subject of groundbreaking clinical studies, Just Thrive has demonstrated incomparable effects on the gut and its undeniable connection to the immune system and the brain. What makes it different is 100% survivability. That means it makes it all the way through your gut and seeds and does what it's supposed to do 
rather than getting burned up by your stomach acids. It's also, of course, vegan, non-GMO, soy, dairy, sugar, salt, nut, and gluten-free. It also includes clinically proven strains specifically for leaky gut. It offers powerful immune and brain support. So now is your opportunity, my friend, to say goodbye to that uncomfortable bloating, the embarrassing gas, and the leaky gut and digestive problems. All you have to do is take one capsule a day per meal or as directed. The capsules can even be opened and sprinkled on food. Since they're spore-based, you can't ruin them. So your search for the best probiotic that actually does what it says it's going to do is over, my friends. And the best news is Just Thrive is offering my listeners 15% off site-wide. Here's what you do. Go to Health slash Luke and enter the code Luke15 to take advantage of these savings. That's JustThriveHealth.com slash Luke and the code is Luke15. Welcome one and welcome all to episode 348 of the Lifestylist Podcast. My name's Luke Story. This episode's called Rite of Passage, My Sacred Hunting Experience with Monsal Denton. Now you're in store for a bit of a departure on this episode and one that is somewhat outside of the scope of our regular programming. The conversation is centered around a recent hunting trip in which I participated here in Texas. Now, this could potentially be a triggering topic for some listeners, so I encourage you to listen through to the end with an open mind and open heart. Now, hunting is, by its very nature, controversial to some compassionate, caring people, like you and me. Yet, as we discuss in this conversation, it's a practice as old as humankind itself. It's also a natural and universal part of the human experience up until a couple generations ago, right, in our collective lineage. So as you'll learn in this conversation, there was something about this innate drive that led me to explore this journey despite my many reservations and fears. In the end, it was indeed a highly transformative rite of passage and one that will leave me forever a changed man. Our guest is Monsal Denton, aka Little Beaver. He's the founder of sacredhunting.com. He's also host of the Monsal Denton podcast on which I've been a guest and the subject of an upcoming documentary, Below the Drop, which explores our relationship to life and death through hunting. Now, Monsal was feeling insecure in early life, so he chased a woman to Europe, a decision that landed him in prison. He's going to talk about that. Struggling with shame and confusion of what it meant to be a man, he found his calling in the sacred art of hunting. He now desires to share this practice with more men like yours truly. His indigenous name comes from a Crow Sun dance chief, and his spiritual lineage is derived from six years of mentorship with a Muscogee Creek medicine man named Will Starhart. And Monsell tells some great stories about how that relationship came to be and how it has influenced his life and his work. For those of you that want a little teaser before you jump into this to make sure you're going to go for it, here's what's up. Here's what we talk about in this conversation with Monsell. The breakdown of my incredible experience with Monsal on one of his sacred hunting excursions. We start with Monsal's rock bottom turning point, as I mentioned earlier, how we got into hunting, my limited and somewhat traumatic history with hunting as a kid, my years as a vegetarian and why I had to stop in order to stay healthy, the hypocrisy I felt by eating meat but not be willing to kill for it, what his experience was like the moment he killed his first animal the biggest lessons he learned from his teacher, the difference in the way indigenous people approach hunting versus the sport hunters, how plant medicines play into hunting practices in different cultures, why domesticated humans are disconnected from this ancient human life practice, how he reconciles the guilt associated with taking another life to sustain his own, whether or not animals we eat from farms suffer more or less than hunted animals, 
the inherent suffering experienced by animals killed by predation in nature, why most of the food he eats is comprised of meat from his hunts, how hunting helped Monsal become more intimate with nature itself, how hunting helped him reconcile his own mortality. The realization I had during the mushroom ceremony during the hunt, yeah, that happened, that death is not a reality. We also contemplate the fact that everything in nature is eating something all the time. The irony that tens of thousands of beans are killed in order to grow vegetables and that plants are also living beings. The idea that you can't be a living human without something dying in order to keep you alive and the hierarchy we humans create for plants and animals. The karma of killing. The moment I shot a wild boar and praying over the body. The dramatic wild boar stampede that transpired during the hunt. How I personally reconciled the sadness I felt during the hunt. Gutting, skinning, and quartering the pig I killed while still in the afterglow of mushrooms. How traditional hunters react to Monsal's reverent approach to this practice. Some of the misconceptions people have about hunters and their care for the environment. And finally, why Monsal only hunts with a bow. For those of you that make it through what could be a challenging conversation for some and emerge from this episode curious about sharing this experience, you can find out more information at sacredhunting.com. Okay, all of that being said, I'd like you to take a deep breath and prepare to expand your awareness of what it means to be human with Monsal Denton. Here we are again, Mansal. This time we're in civilization or decivilization, mm-hmm. you could say, depending on your perspective. Right. So we recently shared a really incredible experience uh, known as sacred hunting upon my arrival here in the uh, Austin, Texas area. And uh, it was one of the most powerful experiences of my life, especially in one particular moment that we'll talk about later. So... Without going into too much of a backstory, because there's so much to unpack here of value for people in the work that you're doing, what I'd like to start off with as uh, a beginner point is what was your rock bottom moment that led you into exploring your consciousness and your relationship with nature? Mm. Thank you. Good question. And thank you for your reflection about our experience together. It's great to hear that you had a a powerful insight there. My rock bottom moment came in prison. I spent six months in prison. And when I look at the hero's journey that is my life, there was a, a, a night when I remember speaking to my family and hearing that my grandfather was likely going to pass away before I could leave prison and spend time with him again. My sisters were were very young and they were feeling a lot of sadness around the loss of their brother, but they didn't really understand what had happened. And it was a particularly challenging part of my life when, of course, being in prison, I had a lot on my mind. And I remember going to my bunk, laying down, putting the covers over my my face and just crying. And that was, you know, in prison, the stereotypes are real. You don't really want people to see you crying. And that was very much the rock bottom point in my life where I had 
a real big trajectory change the rest of my experience there. And uh, it was really, it was governed by a lot of focus on myself, my self-responsibility, the sovereignty that I wanted to have as an individual, and also growing myself as a man. And I think that theme of what does it mean to be a man who is responsible in this world, who is sovereign in this world, set me on a course to define for myself what is masculinity in the absence of any rite of passage, culturally, in the absence of really strong mentorship and guidance. I started this path of trying to figure it out myself. And that is where the slow but sure calling towards nature came from. Cool. Wow. Yeah. If, uh, if prison isn't a bottom, I don't know what is. That, that's probably always been my number one fear. And uh, even when I was doing things that I should have been in prison for, um, I was more careful than your average knucklehead because I was so terrified of that. Uh, as a strange side note question, being half white and half Indian, what racial group were you segregated into? If I understand the social construct of prison, like I think I do. Dude, such a good question. And and an insightful one too, because most people don't even consider that I, in certain prisons, I was often considered white because of being half Anglo and because of my education, because of my upbringing, upper middle class, except for when it came to eating. So like I would spend time with all the the white people, et cetera. But when it came time to eat my meal, they wouldn't allow me to sit at the white table because I wasn't fully white. And when I got to uh, another prison where I spent most of my, my stay, it was almost exclusively Mexican and black. And I was adopted by the blacks. Oh, really? So they, at a certain point, they just said, listen, you're black until further notice. Like (laughs) you can touch the TV because there's a TV for each of the racial groups. There's a TV for the Mexicans, TV for the blacks. And the, the de facto leader of the blacks was just like, you're black until further notice. Like do whatever you want with the TV. Wow. Um, And that was a, it's an interesting story to have in my, oh in my, my resume. Yeah. Anytime. I mean, I don't do it too often cause it's just depressing, but I am sort of fascinated by the phenomenon of imprisoned humans. I think based out of that fear of uh, my personal freedom, I guess, being one of my highest values and also the sort of survivor's guilt of being someone that, as I said, probably should have been there at least for a period of time. Uh, depending on what laws you find to be valid or not, uh, but around drugs and things like that. But yeah, watching those shows, it's so it's so complex, the social hierarchy and the segregation that's kind of self-created and then supported by the prison system in a, I'm assuming, vain effort to keep some semblance of peace in there. But yeah, I was thinking, I just thought of that question. I was like, well, you could pass for Mexican for sure, maybe part black, but you don't look white to me. So it's interesting. I could see where they were like, cool. You're one of us, but not at food time. Right. That's funny. It's kind of like you're one of us in the way you speak and the way you talk and your interests and all that kind of stuff. But for some reason, when it comes to actually delineating it, your skin doesn't reflect what we consider to be white. And uh, it didn't 
there were there were moments where it kind of hurt a little bit and brought up some old racial you know stuff for me but generally speaking it was kind of like this is a whole other universe i'm not buying too much into this into this game that they're playing yeah did you have any conflict with being mixed race growing up in texas i i did feel a lot of conflict and i don't think it was necessarily being in texas I think it had to do a lot with the culture of Indians and some of the, what I would consider like internalized racism that comes from Indian culture. So my mother, what I heard from a lot of what she shared was that being non-white, I would have to be on better behavior I would have to be more successful. Basically, there was a sense that I would have to work harder to get to the same place as a white person. And so I really internalized that as being inferior. Has that proven itself to be true in your life? Do you feel that you've been disadvantaged in any way for not looking like a Caucasian dude? I have felt in moments that it has come up. I have never felt that my lot in life has, well, let me rephrase that. There have been moments where I've wanted to play the victim. Now I recognize in retrospect, there was never moments where I was truly hindered by my race. The question begs what, and I know the answer to this because it's just a funny story. Well, maybe not funny, but one that you wouldn't expect. Tell, tell the the listeners what you ended up getting locked up for. Uh, yeah, well, does play an important role in what I do now and the work that I do now. I was very, I think like most teenagers, I felt relatively insecure. That race component played a big role in how I perceived romantic connection with women. And in essence, I just put women that were white on a pedestal as a result of that, that struggle with race. But there was one woman who, long story short, I fell in love with. She was in Switzerland. And I spent the last couple years of high school essentially learning German to fluency so that I can talk with her and and connect with her. And in retrospect, it was a lot of, of a desire to feel loved and affirmed and, and connected to to a woman and in some ways it led me down a great path i had so much motivation to learn an entire language it just shows how how great the human capacity is when we when we have some kind of need but it also led me down a dark path which was if i was going to go to europe i had to come up with a certain amount of money in order to be able to survive over there. And I was stealing historical documents from a small museum that I was working in as an intern when I was 18, 19 years old. I went to Europe for two years. And when I came back in the United States, I was arrested. Long process. I spent almost four years getting a degree starting businesses, essentially waiting for the trial to come to some kind of completion or the case to come to completion. And then when I was 24, 
I finally got sentenced to spend time in prison. So between when I actually committed the initial crimes and when I went to prison, I was 18 years old. I did prison when I, I went to prison when I was 24. It's like a six year gap. And that is just a part of the judicial system, unfortunately. But it was, I still say, the best thing that ever happened to me to go to prison. And um, did you steal any more documents after you got out of prison? I didn't. <laughs> I bet. I didn't. And how did you know uh, which documents to steal and that were of value? And where the hell does one fence historical documents? Man, the whole situation was very much. It was accidental, and then it was it was the perfect storm for this kind of you know bad behavior as a, as a child. I was super fascinated by World War II and history. I still am. I'm interested in all types of history, but I collected World War II items, so uniforms, medals, all kinds of stuff when I was in high school. And there were some seeds there in high school of what I, how I still show up today. I would spend a lot of time with veterans, much older, wiser men in high school. And I started as an intern working for this small museum. This guy had essentially a, a collection in his garage that he had converted into a museum. And I was an intern there ostensibly to boost my resume. And I was working with these documents, thought nothing of it, but I knew how much they were worth because I was a collector already of these kinds of things. And so when my parents said, you know, if you want to go to school in Europe, you've got to come up with the money yourself. It was so tempting. And the part of me that wanted to take the easy way out instead of working some terrible high school cashier's job or something like that. I just stole the documents, took the easy way out. And, the and rest where did you, how did you find a buyer for them and how much money did you get? I had buyers before I even oh, okay, thought you already about selling. Yes. Yeah. So it was like, it was so plug and play. And for a 20 year old, it probably was like $20,000. So for an 18 year old, actually, it, that was a lot of money. Yeah, Absolutely. Did you have to pay restitution? I had to to pay restitution. We got a significant percentage of the documents back from the people that I sold it to. And there was, yeah, restitution in a a civil court case. And then, of course, I did prison. So I had, it could have been worse, but I definitely had the book thrown at me. Yeah, you paid your dues to society. Yes, and to be really truthful. My parents paid a lot of the dues and they supported me a lot through that entire period. Cause I, you know, as a kid who had already blown all the money going to school, I didn't have the money for the lawyer, for the restitution, et cetera. So you could have gone and stole some other shit. <laughs> no, 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 we don't want to do that. Yeah. I find, I find your story and you know, having gotten to know you a bit and, and you telling me your story, I think when we met a couple of years ago in LA and, um, I find it so interesting because I would perceive you to be a really good kid. You know, you have some insecurities, you have some issues, you're shy, you don't fit in, you know, whatever those kind of things. But you weren't like a juvenile delinquent. You weren't a drug addict. You weren't running amok. And I find that so interesting that you were so incentivized by those unmet needs 
that you did something that seems to be quite out of character for the kind of kid you were. I mean, I said kid, 18, at 50, an 18-year-old is a kid. It's kind of what happens later on in life. But uh, yeah, I find that really interesting because I, I know the version of you now to be so integrous and, um, and carry yourself with such honor and dignity that it's really interesting for me to think back about that one slip up and what a heavy price to pay, man. Like that's, that's not a slap on the wrist. I mean, going to prison, uh, I'm assuming affects you for the rest of your life. Do you have, um, have you ever had any situations in which, and by the way, those listening, we are going to get to the topic of the show, which is about hunting, (laughs) but uh, the setup is interesting to me. Do you ever have any issues in which uh, that record uh, haunts you and prevents you from having certain rights or, you know, a spot on your resume kind of thing? Well, uh, it's been a long time since I've been worried about my resume. I just kind of <laughs> make my own way through through the world, luckily. And uh, I'm very grateful for that uh, internal drive, so to speak. Yeah, you have the entrepreneurial spirit, yeah, clearly. Yeah, I had it then too, which is... Yeah, <laughs> misdirected. <laughs> misdirected. And ignoring other people's, uh, you know, boundaries, perhaps. Yeah, but, yeah, yeah. yeah. That's, that is yeah what happens with trauma. Um, it has restricted me in some ways. I mean, the most ironic example is when I go hunting, I have to use a bow for legal reasons as a felon. I'm not supposed to be in possession of a weapon. Other people can be in my presence. Other people can own them. Other people can use them. I'm not supposed to be using them and I'm not supposed to be hunting with them. So it's incredible the work that I do and it's all kosher, but I'm walking a fine line and there'll be, you know, scrutiny until I can work through the final pieces of, of the, the litigation, things like that, things that are currently in the works with my lawyers, et cetera, to make things a little bit safer for me. Yeah. Yeah, it makes sense. But it wow. doesn't it doesn't impact me too much. Yeah, I just think about anything I've ever applied for. I mean, it's been a while, whether it was a job or just, I don't know, questionnaires that you have to fill out. And, and it, it one of the questions inevitably will be, have you ever been convicted as a felon? I was like, no, I can't believe not. <laughs> but when I got caught for felonies, uh, I was under 18. So they, you know, they don't show up anymore, uh, thankfully. But yeah, that's, that's an interesting thing to have that on your record, especially, as I said, because you're not someone who led a life of crime, was this really hardened criminal, badass addict, you know, uh, violent person or something like that, where you'd expect that. It's just that one slip up, you know, and then it's sort of on your, on your record for a while. And I guess that affects you to whatever greater or lesser degree it has. But yeah, I thought that's interesting when we set out to go hunting, you mentioned that and I thought, oh yeah, that's right. But also as we'll get into, um, it was interesting how that played out in that you pursued bow hunting, which um, I presume to be uh, quite a bit more difficult. And I'd say uh, in terms of a fair fight with game, um, a much more fair fight than having a firearm. Mm-hmm. So it's interesting uh, that that ended up being the case with the reverence that you have for the natural world and the animals that you're working with and killing as a hunter. So we'll, uh, we'll definitely get into that. So uh, for a little context, and I know this is probably going to be a pretty conversational episode just because there's uh, so many things that have 
transpired in my life in, in relation to hunting and then the experience that we had. It's difficult to have a Q&A type um, interview, but I'm going to do my best to give you plenty of space to share your experience. But for those listening to uh, be able to unpack this a little bit, prior to my going hunting with you a couple of weeks ago here, uh, right after I arrived in Texas, I mean, that was really the first hang I had with anyone. It's like going out into the wilderness with a big gun. Uh, you know, it's a really, it was a really meaningful experience for me for a number of reasons. One being that as a kid, I primarily lived with my mom and she was definitely not into hunting. She was, she hates when I call her a hippie, but maybe she was kind of a bohemian. Let's just say that. She's like, hippies didn't shower. I wasn't like that. I was a mod, but she was from Berkeley, very liberal, ended up meeting my dad in Aspen, Colorado. They got married, popped me out. Uh, and we, they got divorced when I was four. And I grew up in California with my mom, listening to Zeppelin, smoking weed, riding skateboards. Dad, however, started hunting when he was, I think, seven years old. He got his first little six shooter, which I have now, which is one of my favorite family heirlooms, you know. Um, I have a great story about why to not hand someone a loaded six shooter. <laughs> I'll tell it. Fucking handed my buddy G Joe my gun. I was like, check out my dad gave me his his try his first gun, his childhood gun. It's a really cool little Smith and Wesson, you know, little uh twenty-two caliber pistol revolver and uh and then I walked in the other room and I hear, boom, fucking Gijo pulled the trigger and fired it into the carpet by accident. So 50% dumbass, don't pull a trigger on a gun. Uh, and then my part, of course, being perhaps more than 50 cent, uh, 50% don't hand someone a loaded gun. And especially not if you don't tell them the gun's loaded. Uh, so anyway, but anyway, I digress. Back to dad. So uh, dad, very avid hunter, fisher, just taking down game like a beast my whole life. And I never identified with that. Because uh, I was a soft, sensitive kid. I mean, even if I wasn't raised by my mom, I think I still just, I just didn't have that kind of aggression in me. I was always just more emotionally based. And I just wanted to go play with the animals and just be in nature and swim in the creeks and much like I am to this day. But I did have a couple hunting experiences with my dad, uh, hunting bears that were pretty gnarly. Um, in terms of just the level of violence and things kind of going wrong, you know. Uh, and the way that they would hunt bears were with dogs. And so they'd have a, a pack of dogs with radio collars and they would bait the bears with this rotten meat and gunny sacks and they'd go out in the area they were going to hunt and start bringing all the bears to the yard. And then they'd go in and set the dogs loose and uh, you'd watch the dogs on your little radio transmitter thingy. I'm sure it's gotten more sophisticated now, but you'd be able to see if all the dogs stopped together, you're like, there's a bear there and they would tree a bear and then the hunters my dad and his friends and, and I as an accomplice would go to shoot the bear out of the tree and they would skin the bear, get the bear, the whole thing right there. And then just like leave everything there except the hide. And even as a kid, you know, I didn't know anything about indigenous traditions or native American hunting ways or anything, but I just intuitively knew that there's something wrong with that. Like, why, why would you cause suffering like that when you're not hungry? <laughs> you know what I mean? Um, and there was another experience with the bear where, I'm not sure if they killed the mother bear without knowing it had two cubs or if she ran off or what happened, but we ended up treeing two cubs at the very top of a pine tree uh, and they, they're not coming down. So my dad's friend went up with a chainsaw, sawed the top of the tree off to, to fell the bears. One of the cubs got impaled and immediately died on a broken branch. And the other one lived because it fell on something soft, like a bunch of branches or something. My dad's friend grabs a sack and goes and catches the baby bear 
we throw it in the back of the truck and bring it home. We had a pet bear for a while uh, in like the dog kennel. It had its own little kennel. And, uh, and then it got too big and my dad's friend took it to his house in Golden and kept it on his property until it was a massive bear and then eventually had to give it to the Denver Zoo. So those experiences definitely turned me off to the whole idea of, of that because there was just, it was just sport. There was no um, real like meaningful utility in that. And uh, so I didn't do that, you know, for a long time. And even when we would go out and we'd shoot woodchucks and squirrels and stuff just for fun, like target practice. And I would like it until I walked up and saw a blown apart little animal for no reason. So that's like how I walked into this experience with you. That was my experience of like, this is harsh. Like, I don't think I ever want to do that. But there was something that called me to this experience as I think a rite of passage into just being a natural human. This is what humans have been doing forever uh, until the advent of agriculture and us figuring out how you could entrap and breed animals and keep them on the property that you now decide is your property and that whole system that we're in now. So the experience I had with you was, um, was meaningful on so many levels because it was an experience that I kind of missed sharing with my dad in a meaningful way. And because he and I had such different interests, there weren't a lot of experiences that we really could share. And he would take me and do the things that he liked to do because when he was a kid, he would have loved to do the things that he was taking me to do, but we really lacked that uh, common connection. And now he's older and doesn't do a lot of hunting. And so... Um, it's not something I've had the opportunity to do with him. So there was like a lot of sort of historical relevance for me in this experience. And um, I just wanted to share that as kind of a preface so people understand the rest of the conversation going into this as what a foreign experience it was for me in so many ways, especially the way that you do it. Mm -hmm. Um, What was it that led you to hunting? Mm. Yeah, hearing you share that story I can even feel the reflection of my own traumas, et cetera, that led me to, to hunting and to the way that I view it and how so many people have those backstories like you shared, whether it's more mainstream or in the family, et cetera. There's, there's so much that is bound up in hunting and I came to it the, through ostensibly a desire to become closer to my food. That was the initial motivation. And I found much, much more than that. And in retrospect, what I really was seeking was a practice, an embodied practice that would allow me to express some form of my masculinity because even though I was a sensitive boy similar to you I had aggression and I it showed up on the soccer field I would just knock kids out <laughs> and so that aggression that I had and you shared your own instinct with the squirrels there's something innate there it was it was some type of an aggression something that's very innate to our species and unfortunately we don't have the guidance we don't have the other side which is the reverence that can guide us into right relationship with that aggression 
So in retrospect, it was for me, it was a way of acknowledging what is true for me, expressing it and trying to orient my life around certain types of practices uh, that could embody masculinity. Because it's one thing to read books about masculinity. And there's some great books, The Way of the Superior Man, David Data, tons of you know great men's work and stuff there. There are men's groups, Mankind Project, et cetera. All of that I found valuable, but it's different to be thinking about masculinity versus embodying it in a practice. And that is what I found hunting to solidify for me. I think that a lot of us um, Westerners that are male uh, have a difficult time navigating what it means to be a man and what a healthy expression of our masculine nature is, especially those of us that have had fathers that didn't, um, at least at the time, model that for us or that were abusive or that were not present. And it seems to me that this is a bit, you know, off of, on a philosophical tangent, but I think the root of a lot of the problems that we see in society is really due to a lack of healthy masculinity, of healthy role models and those rites of passage that usher boys, immature boys, into being conscious men that use their their power wisely and and with compassion. And uh, and I know men like that, and some of them are that way because they had a father that was like that, but they're the exception. Most of us, I'll include me with you, have had to kind of figure it out through whatever practices seem to be uh, attractive and effective for, for doing so, right? Because to sway to one side creates an imbalance. And I think that a lot of people that are sort of uh, down on men and, and the patriarchy have um, a, a very prevalent misconception that that masculinity is the problem and the men that perpetuate wrongdoing on others and uh, on society in general and cause harm are acting out expressions of masculinity. But I've always looked at it that they are just more out of balance and are actually, especially in the case of someone who's very violent and rageful, are actually more in their feminine because they don't have the ability to control their emotions, Mm -hmm. right? And they don't have that sense of of care and, and nurturing and responsibility that comes with an integrated male animal of any type, really. And most male animals in their natural state are like that. And we humans have a prefrontal cortex that we can use to (laughs) to build discernment into how to channel those energies. And so I think um, that's a really interesting thing that you were drawn to that as a way, like, what does it mean to be a man? What have men historically done? Whatever I'm looking at how to be a person, how to be human, I think of what are the best things our ancestors have brought forth and what are the things that have been lost and what are the things that we've outgrown that no longer serve us and that cause um, unnecessary suffering. So that's, um, that's a really interesting perspective. Uh, do you remember the moment um, that you killed your first big animal? Remember it distinctly. I don't think I'll ever forget it. It was an antelope and I remember this herd of black buck antelope that were moving in front of me as I was sitting in a blind. For those who are not aware, 
a common way of hunting is called ambush hunting, where one is hidden in a certain spot and is waiting around either a body of water or some kind of food source or something like that for animals to come. And that's especially true for archery in the beginning because archery is so much more challenging. And so this herd of antelope come into my view and it was immediately creating a lot of physical sensations for me. The closeness of the animals, the there's something about knowing that it's a potential energy, you know, kinetic energy, potential energy. There's a potential energy there where you know your mission in that moment is to hunt an animal and you have this tool and that animal is almost within this range of when you can use the tool, whether it's a rifle, bow, whatever. So I felt that. I felt it coming quite strongly. My heart, my adrenaline started to, to dump. And one thing that I noticed was this family of antelope was so connected with one another. And that the sense that I got was there was a jovial familial play that was going on. There was probably six to eight of them. And I wasn't thinking about this much at the time. It was kind of in retrospect. But when I took the shot, I saw the animal jump. Usually if you hit them in the vital organs, they do kind of a kicking jump and then they run. So I saw the the antelope run. I saw her fall over with my binoculars. And then I saw her kind of in her death throes, just struggling. And, and then I saw at a distance, this like foam coming from her body, which is, which is the oxygen that has reached the lungs. And it's a sign that the shot was going to kill it. And at that moment, I'm feeling joy, I'm feeling pride, but I'm also feeling sadness because I'm seeing the antelopes, what I judge to be sisters, aunts, mother, they are confused. They're close to the animal. They're sniffing it. They're looking at it. They're looking around. If I, you know, obviously anthropomorphization is something that people recommend against, but when you're in that moment and you see the animals behaving in a certain way, it's impossible not to empathize with what they must be feeling. So assigning a human-like quality to their behavior. Right. And when they left, they eventually came to terms with it and they left. They, they went off the same direction well, they came in and then they went off the other direction. When they left, it was a completely different situation. They had their heads down. They were slow. They were moving in like single file as opposed to when they came in together, playful, running around with each other. And it there was not enough 
time for me to integrate all of the feelings. It was only to it was only later when I pieced together what had happened, when I reflected on that disparity, that change, that I could really evaluate the whole situation. And it took support from plant medicine. It took support from my spiritual teacher, but it was a extremely profound experience to have that intention to, to kill an animal with a bow and, and to have it be successful. And to backtrack just a, a little bit, I had gone to do an ayahuasca retreat a month before that hunt. And in that retreat, I thought about the animal that I'd be hunting. And I started crying just thinking about the fact that I was going to be killing this animal. And the gravity of it really struck me under you know the force of ayahuasca. And in that moment, I asked higher power, please just allow the arrow to go straight through the heart of the animal and kill it quickly and cleanly. That was the only thing that I asked. And that was very important for me because that was the first time I ever had a relationship with a higher power. It was the first time I felt such a, hmm. a need for support that I would ask. And sure enough, when I killed that antelope and we later, you know, took it, took all the meat and all the guts and everything, it went straight through the heart and it took less than six seconds for the animal to die. And so it was very important for me to, to see what I saw, to see the emotions, to empathize with those animals, to be successful, to have a mission that I had completed, but also to have support from a higher power, at least in my interpretation of the events. That's so interesting that you made it through six months in prison without ever praying to God. <laughs> like I get a hangnail and I'm like, God, help me, help me. This hurts. Oh, that's wild. So what is, what a setup to go have an, you know, an in-depth experience with ayahuasca, knowing that you're, you're going into that. And then, uh, if I have the story right, then didn't you follow that up with yet another ayahuasca retreat after that initial experience? Yeah, it was a month later. And by the way, none of this was planned. Everything was accidental. I was in a place where I was following what was calling to me. This retreat was calling to me. This hunting experience was calling to me. Another retreat was calling to me. So I just did them. And I didn't... I didn't do them intentionally, but when I went on the second retreat, I was understandably fascinated with death at that point because I had just killed an animal. There was other things that were up for me. I think somebody had recommended a book. And so I was reading many books on the subject of death. I was, I took the skin of that antelope down to the ayahuasca retreat, scared all my neighbors who were trying to have their own ceremonies and they'd open their eyes and see the skin next to them lay there. And that was also a profound experience that helped to contextualize for me what I had done killing an animal. I connected with the spirit of that antelope and it was done in a very loving way. I felt no judgment from the antelope. I felt like it was in coherence and resonance with me. I realized some things about the meat that m is mostly available in the United States 
I had some really profound realizations there and made some commitments around the kind of meat that I want to be eating and putting into my body and having become a part of me. And that was, yeah, one of the, one of the triumvirate of these, these three experiences that really, really set the tone for me for what became, you know, my current life's work. Yeah. Found your Dharma in the most interesting way. Around the piece about where our meat comes from, those of us that choose to eat meat, and I think there's a lot we can explore perhaps in a bit about um, those that don't, because I, I was a vegetarian for many years. One of the things that motivated me to explore hunting with you was this sense of hypocrisy, for lack of a better word. There might be another one floating somewhere, but as someone who feels best when I eat a fair amount of meat uh, and don't feel good when I don't eat enough meat. It's just the fact I've, I've tried every kind of diet known to man, I think. And, um, and the one that works for me is like eating a lot of meat. That's the only thing that I feel fulfilled by and energized by really. However, the fact that I perceived at least before this experience with you that I didn't have the guts to go do the deed myself. It's like, I'm, I'm hiding in my house, not getting my hands dirty figuratively or literally, and, you know, order my grass fed meat from wherever Belcampo. I mean, I I do get my meat from farms uh, that I've either been to and observed the procedures. Uh, I mean, of course, if I go out and eat, I don't, you know, hopefully it was that way, but I order meat at home, it's going to be from Belcampo. I've been to their farm. I've been to the slaughterhouse. I reconciled the process of how they raise and treat those animals and specifically how they're slaughtered. And then uh, another um, ranch called Covenant. I got it wrong on a podcast and he emailed me. He was like, hey, thanks for the plug. Say our name right. Covenant. Covenant Pastures, I believe it's called in Bakersfield. And it's a small operation. And I got on the phone with them. I said, what water did they drink? Uh, you know, how are they treated? Are they kept in a pen? Blah, blah, blah. You know, how are they slaughtered, et cetera. And it passed the sniff test for me in terms of the most humane way that I could get meat. But that said, there's still a disconnect between me and the natural world. And I feel like a hypocrite for not being willing to participate in the ecology cycle that brings, that makes a plant turn into an animal and that animal turn into my food. And as you said, so correctly into the body that I'm carrying around. And that was a huge um, motivator for me because I've always felt guilty about eating meat as a vegetarian, you know, not so much anymore. Cause I just, I mean, I've had a lot of deep dives into um, the nature of death itself. And we can get into that. And many, many of those realizations came during our experience with the mushrooms, which comes later. Uh, but uh that was a huge motivator for me was just like, God, humans have been doing this forever. And then we figured out how to make it easy on ourselves. And, uh, and the rest of us have someone else go and do that work for us. And that doesn't mean that I, that I'm going to start hunting all the time and live exclusively off hunted meat like you do for the most part. Uh, it's that it's not everyone's job to go out and be the hunter. If I take myself back 20,000 years in my tribe, I might not have been the hunter guy. I might've been the musician or whatever. Um, it's not necessarily in everyone's nature to go out and have that be their job. But it's like, I feel if you're going to be sort of a CEO of a company, it's probably a really good idea to work in the mailroom at some point. Right. 
uh, and do some accounting and, and have a full experience of, of your role. And so my role is here talking on a mic, but part of my role is also interfacing with the natural world. How much of that was part of your motivation of being disconnected from meat, but still feeling like your body needed to eat it? A huge part. I grew up vegetarian. So like you, I spent much of my life or a sizable portion of my life actually as a vegetarian. My mother's from India. She was raised a vegetarian. So she cooked and there were no judgments towards meat. It was just, she cooked almost every meal. So I was de facto vegetarian. When I started eating meat, I probably gained 20 pounds in muscle. I felt so much better. And I kind of started on that path as a result. But I too had the question, what is it where there is a disconnect here between the fact that I'm eating meat and the fact that I only ever see the meat that I eat in packages or in a restaurant. I've never been a part of that process. And that was initially what stimulated me to go into hunting in the first place. Obviously much more came from that. But one of the ways that really clicked for me was in that second ayahuasca experience, having the the book, The Body Keeps the Score, very much at the forefront of my mind. The, the quick synopsis of that book is plenty of studies show that we don't simply hold our trauma in our mind, but it's actually stored in our body, stored in our muscles, in our movement patterns. It's, it's a very well-documented and, and popular concept. So if we hold our trauma in our body, it stands to reason that an animal would too. And if an animal's holding trauma in their body, and I eat that, and that literally becomes a part of me, I'm just bringing on their trauma. I don't have a well-versed relationship to the karma and some of the Eastern philosophies, but I suspect there's a linkage there. So there's some kind of connection there. So anyway, that's how I viewed it. And I really wanted a, a relationship to the meat, as you were suggesting, that would reflect to me that they led a life that was relatively free from trauma. And yeah, I choose hunting because I want the animals to be free and wild and live the way that they for the most part, we're, we're meant to live. And then in a quick moment, they're dead. But it can happen in many regenerative operations. Belcampo is great. There's many others. So the only thing that I find important that gets neglected about the conversation with hunting is how important the comp, the connection to a living being dying is to our consumption. It is so much easier for me in my past to have wasted food and meat if I had no connection to it. It's so much easier for me to overconsume meat if I have no connection to it. And the more disconnected we are 
collectively from the death that we're creating. No matter what we eat, no matter what clothes we wear, no matter what we do, we're creating death. The more disconnected we are from that, the the more compounded the problems we create for the earth, in my judgment. Wow. That's an interesting point I hadn't thought of. I thought my notes were pretty comprehensive, but that's that's interesting. So so if we are yeah, it's like if we're disconnected from that process, that natural life cycle, which I always just observe everything. And this is part of the reconciliation when I decided to eat meat was when I really got down to it from bacteria on up, everything's eating everything all the time. That's all things do is eat other things and transmute energy. One thing needs energy. So it takes the energy from another thing. A bigger thing takes its energy and so on and so on. Right. And for whatever reason, we ended up being the apex predator because of our ability to create weapons and, uh, you know, organize ourselves around hunts and things like that. But yeah, it's like, if you are more interconnected to that system and are doing that in a conscious way, it seems like there would be, uh, as weird as this might sound, and I'm sure, well, I guess that at many points in this conversation, it could sound like rationalization to someone who chooses to be animal free in their diet or whatever, but it's like, the consciousness that's created by being part of that process has, I would assume, according to what you just said and expanding on that, a greater net effect on how you consume the energy that you consume as one link in that chain, right? If we're just disconnected from it, it's like, it doesn't have any meaning. It's just, like you said, it's something we got in a package. It's like, cool, that's a hamburger. It's not, oh, I remember the moment when that animal took its last breath, man, that was a really profound moment. I'm going to take this in with a reverence and a respect for that experience and that, that animal sacrifice. I don't have a connection to the sacrifice of a cow I eat, or if you went to McDonald's, it's probably 70 cows that you're eating in one burger or whatever, right? That's a really interesting perspective. We'll be right back at you after this brief but important announcement. Due to eating a bunch of crappy food and living a pretty unhealthy lifestyle earlier in life, uh, I did a lot of damage to my gut. So I've been working on restoring my gut health for a long time. And I recently discovered something from a company called bodybio.com that has completely changed the game. It's been incredible. I did some gut testing with my doctor, Dr. Scott Schur, and he found that I was low in something called butyrate. And I was like, what's butyrate? And he said, well, you're supposed to have it in your gut and you don't. So this company from Body Bio makes this product called Butyrate. Butyrate is a postbiotic. It's a short chain fatty acid that promotes a healthy microbiome, improves gut function, supports a healthy inflammation response, and improves cell health on the genetic level by protecting DNA. So I did these tests and I started taking this Butyrate product by Body Bio and uh, recently retested and the problem solved. It's incredible. I love when you can test something, take a product, and then it works. Butyrate is a postbiotic that's produced by your microbiome in the gut. So when we feed our gut cells in the microbiome the right foods, primarily resistant starch and soluble fiber, then the microbiome is super happy and appropriately regulates the immune system by producing this important molecule called butyrate. The problem is, like the problem was for me, that most of us don't eat enough foods to get healthy levels of butyrate, especially those of us on the keto and paleo diets. I would say I'm paleo-ish. Try to be keto, sometimes I fail. 
So butyrate is just an incredible supplement to add to your digestive health regimen. Uh, This is the number one recommended butyrate supplement by integrative and functional practitioners. And as I said, it's had a hugely positive impact on my gut health and digestion after doing those labs. So I got in it for about two months and my levels were completely restored to normal. I keep taking it periodically just to make sure that they stay normal. So if you're someone who wants to improve your gut health and digestion, here is what you do. Go to bodybio.com. That's B-O-D-Y-B-I-O, bodybio.com. And when you get over to the site, you can use the code loop 20 to save 20% off all of your products. That's bodybio.com. And now back to the interview. In terms of an animal's natural life, how you were talking about wanting to participate in taking an animal's life that's lived free and roamed and expressed themselves for however long they were around, do you think an animal that becomes prey or food for a bigger or smarter animal, what's the, what's the hierarchy of suffering between an animal that's killed in the wild, an animal that is uh, killed in a slaughterhouse? Like when I watch the animal planet and I see some hyenas take down a gazelle, that looks like a way worse death than a humane certified death of a cow on a regenerative farm or something like that's just boom, they're gone. So in terms of not only their death, but what about their life? Like does, does an antelope out in the wild in Texas suffer more by being chased around by mountain lions and whatever their predators are than a cow just that gets to chill in a pasture. You know Mm -hmm. what I mean? Like which animal has it harder in life and in death? Yeah. So so many layers to this. I'm going to start by saying that what I'm about to share might sound like a rationalization and I'm really intentional that I don't rationalize for myself or my or for others because I feel what many, you know, vegetarians or vegans might project onto me. I do feel guilty. I do feel sad. I do feel empathetic. I feel all of those things. And my goal in life, but specifically in this work, is to feel those things fully instead of quickly going to a story that can avoid those emotions. So that's, I'll set that there. No bypass allowed on this show. (laughs) Yeah. Let's go deep. When we talk about the lives of these animals, you're absolutely correct that wild animals live some of the most brutal lives and they die in the most brutal ways sometimes. A, if you look at the way predators evolve, predators and all animals, really, they're trying to, they're living on the razor's edge. They have to conserve energy and they will evolve to conserve energy in any way possible, which means a lot of predators have no desire to kill an animal. They have a desire to get the energy from the animal. So you'll see countless examples of gazelles that are still alive with the hyenas ripping out their insides. Because the hyenas don't care about the animal's life or death. It's just, how can I get this energy? So it is much brutal in the wild, much more brutal. And so you compare an animal that might be living on a farm who's got 
protection of a fence is fed, like has all these pastures for grass. And then it's looking in one direction and you just kill it, doesn't even know what happens, et cetera. There's a great argument for like a really great regenerative operation to do that. And that's a very kind of humane process. But if it is not that great of an operation and you're saying, wow, these these animals, these cows are getting fed, they're living a luxurious life, they feel good, look at the Wagyu beef, it's all fatty because they're just relaxing and having a good life and then one day they're dead versus the, the gazelle that we have seen is is kind of lives a really hard life trying to scratch a living off the the grass that they find and avoid predators and then they have kind of a brutal death well one thing is we have tons of humans that are the same way and they're not happier they feel more depressed more anxious they have everything given to them they're not fulfilling their purpose in the world Versus people who might have lived like hunter-gatherers, hunter-gatherers that still live to this day, who are still scratching a living off of rocks, eating grubs and other things like that, but they feel much more fulfilled, they feel much more connected, etc. So my argument is just, I think there is something to be said about a creature embodying the way that it was meant to be on this planet. And so that gazelle, the the wild animal that I kill, probably in some ways had a harsher life, but it was fulfilling its mission and its role in the ecosystem. And my hope is that I can embody what is collectively a very human experience to be a predator in that way as well. You know, it's interesting on those Animal Planet shows, and I don't know if this is true for everyone, but definitely is for me. If you look at the lion chasing the gazelle, I'm always rooting for the gazelle. I I noticed that one day. I was watching one of those shows and I thought, why am I not rooting for the lion? The lion's hungry. and, And you see those lions, they walk around for days and they have cubs they can't feed. They're starving. They're emaciated and just dying for something to eat. And uh, it's just interesting that I always am on the side of the prey and I feel so sorry for them. I mean, my heart breaks just seeing them get torn apart like that. It's just, it's just brutal. But on the other side, it's like, well, what about, what about the hungry lion and those cubs? And that takes us back to that, that cycle of life where things are seemingly evolving into a higher consciousness or higher intelligence beings. I mean, when you come from the um, reincarnation perspective, I can only assume which reincarnation seems very real to me based on so many life experiences and the teachings that have been passed down by so many masters all over the world that the animal world is also part of that cycle, right? So the moment I'm feeling sorry for that gazelle and not so much the lion, well, who's to say that the energy that was once animating that gazelle doesn't emerge again as a lion cub that's starving is going to end up taking down a gazelle because it's starving, right? Yeah. It's just such an interesting, I think if we can stay malleable and open-minded and really zoom out and look at the 
the experience of life like that, it becomes very interesting and it's so nuanced. There's not, there's not really a, a room for, um, I think in an intelligent conversation, room for right or wrong in terms of morality on this. It's like, hmm, what is really happening here? Now that said, small anecdote, by yeah, the yeah, way, just, just yeah. to that point is like, if you think about humans and they, when they die and this, at this point, I'm not sure if it's confirmed scientifically or not, but there's a suggestion that humans release DMT upon death. Let's hope so. <laughs> well, I have been in the experience of killing an animal and watching it as it's dying and having the guy tell me, shoot it, shoot it again, shoot it again. And I just am with the animal in its final moments as its head starts to kind of look up and around. And the sense I got was that, that it was a goat, that goat looks like he's on psychedelics and just watching him kind of move from this earthly plane into the next plane. It can be peaceful. It's not always peaceful. It can be peaceful though. And yeah, that was, um, I'll just, I'll cut to the chase of something I was going to talk about later. But when we went out the first night, uh, we're looking for Axis deer who were legal to shoot and, um, and wild boars who are so prevalent here in Texas and to many people considered an invasive species and quite a nuisance to agriculture and properties value and things like that. But anyway, we're out on the hunt and uh, first night I shoot we see one pig, he runs away, big one. We see another one and just, it all happens so fast. You put up the sticks. I get that rifle pointed at him. His butt's turned to me. I do not want to cause suffering. That is not why I'm out there. It's just wound an animal and have it run off in the weeds and suffer. And it was like this instantaneous, just so innate and like you said, there was adrenaline and it was, it was an intense moment, but there was no hesitation, which was so strange to me. I wasn't like, I can't do it. I mean, it was just like, go. And it just happened instantly. And it turned to the side, took that shot, heard an incredibly uh, hard sound to, to forget. Just the screaming, you know, for just this couple seconds. And then it's like, oh my God, no, no, did I, did I wound it? Took another shot couldn't really tell if it hit it. And then we ran up and to the point of like the psychedelic nature of the transfer of life out of a physical being into wherever life reemerges. Um, one of the most powerful experiences of my life. And for me, it was very much like, it wasn't psychedelic in the sense like, Oh, I'm seeing colors, but I was not in a normal state at all. I was in a completely altered state the moment that bullet hit that animal. And especially as we got close to it and it took its last breaths and I'm, you know, when it was safe to approach and I'm holding my hand on that big boar and just sensing the, oh man, there's just this, um, Ah, this density to the energy in that moment where everything is very slow and um, very much like being on plant medicines. Like you're, you're not in a normal state of being anymore as that life force is moving around. <laughs> it's in something and it's going somewhere else and it's 
perhaps passing through you. And oh my God, what a powerful experience. Just tears running down my face. But it wasn't, I'm not crying, crying. It's just the overwhelming intensity of participating in, in life like that. It was powerful for me to be a part of that experience with you and to watch everybody's reaction and their state change and and feel the emotions that we're both <laughs> feeling again right now. Yeah, it's funny just even going back there. It's it's like experiences um that I've heard relayed from people who they themselves subjectively have had near-death experiences or people uh, like a Ram Dass who's sat with countless people as they've left their body and they describe it, but it's, it's indescribable until you're there having that experience, you know? And um, yeah. And so, I mean, that just changed my perspective in so many ways around death and what it really is or isn't. And perhaps we'll get into that later, but um, just to zip around a little bit back to the prior point of, I don't know, it's just, it's, it's just the way, the way I, the way I think is just looking at things from all different angles. So back to, you know, the amount of suffering that takes place when an animal dies on the farm versus the wild, et cetera. When I was first reconciling that my body really needed me to feel healthy and fulfilled and, and vital. I was observing how farms are created that grow vegetables and thinking about when you look at a, a pasture, a natural pasture and all of the living beings and all of the living creatures from snakes to gophers, to grasshoppers, to gnats, to flies, to butterflies, birds, worms, all the things. And to take a tractor and rip the skin off that earth in order to put fake earth there to grow kale, you know, I wonder in terms of caloric value and energy that we need as a human to get the calories one would get from a bowl of kale versus a small piece of beef or deer or whatever, wild game or not, if you count the number of deaths that have to happen. I'm not talking about factory farms. Like that's a whole other thing perhaps we can get into, but I just mean like a well-raised, you know, managed herd of cattle on some land. If I'm eating a bowl of kale, how many single creatures had to die in order for me to eat that kale versus a piece of meat? Have you ever thought about that? Yeah. I think about it a lot when that argument and you know, disdain are thrown my way because of the work that I'm doing, because of the choices that I make. And I don't, uh, I just feel empathy for the people who don't understand that truth, that foxes and fawns and mice are all killed, whether it's by the combines or through the poisons that keep the grains, you know, protected and all these things. I have empathy because it is another symptom of being disconnected. It's another symptom of being disconnected from that process. And we're humans are 
always going to try and find ways around our feelings. And if there's a feeling of guilt, there's a feeling of shame around what we're doing to the planet, it's much easier to remove ourselves from a being like an animal that behaves a lot like us. And in the philosophies that I have learned, like plant life is just as sacred as animal life. And it, the way that we treat it is more important than what we're doing per se. So, you know, animals can be killed and consumed lovingly with reverence and with respect or not. Plants can be grown with loving respect and reverence or not. And that's where I see the value in hunting so much for people, even like vegetarians or vegans, just understanding what the death feels like because it exists and it happens and we can't shield ourselves from it lest we make poor decisions from that disconnected place. Because that's ultimately what is showing up. You've got companies like Impossible Meat and all these, you know, fake meat companies, these oat milk thing. It's, you know, it's all these, these, these companies. I don't doubt there's people in all those companies that have good intentions and they're trying to use science to, to our advantage, but they are playing on our empathy towards an animal that looks similar to us and hiding all of the problems that show up and all of the death that shows up when you use how many ever ingredients, hundreds of ingredients that they're using, monocrop ingredients to create their products. So it's, to sum it up, it's really about the connection. Do you have a connection? And if you want to be a vegan or vegetarian and you want to eat kale and you grow it yourself in your backyard and you grow it through permaculture or you get it from a local farmer down the street, good be unto you. You're seeking a connection to your food and that is a way to mitigate the significant detrimental impact we're having on the planet. Do you get a lot of uh, flack from people? Do you you get uh, a fair amount of trolling because you're doing something which... Personally, I don't think should be controversial because, again, it's just it's what humans have been doing forever. Not to say that there are things that we've been doing forever, like slavery, that still happens to this day that we would be better served to not do, obviously. But um, to me, it's kind of it would be strange, especially the way you're doing it. I mean, trophy hunting and things like that, I, I, I can see why it would be extremely triggering to your average awake person. But do you get a lot of pushback and hate from people that are pissed off about your role in the world? I get some. But honestly, way less than I would expect. And I judge that it's because of the way that I relate to the practice. And I, I don't doubt that my own shadow gets in the way as well. But generally speaking, I have a very 
emotionally open, vulnerable relationship to hunting. I have a lot of reverence. You know, you talked about at the beginning of this podcast, my demeanor being very sensitive. And that is a big part of my practice with hunting is I have a high level of sensitivity and I am emotional and I feel for these animals very deeply and love them deeply. And I, I'm not the only one, but I think it is more the exception than the rule. And that is something that people feel. And generally speaking, it negates a lot of the vitriol that might come my way otherwise. Yeah, I think there's a lot of uh, stigma around hunters, probably due to the fact that uh, many of them, historically, at least in America, um, have treated it as a sport, sport hunting, big game. And it's this egoic sort of trophy hunting thing and all that, where there doesn't seem to be much connection or reverence uh, that you speak of. But that said, I find that this is not something I've explored a lot because it's not been part of my life. So I haven't gotten a lot of heat for it. But the general sentiment, I think, is that most hunters are unconscious assholes just out torturing animals. Um, yet I don't uh, observe the people that would be critical of that particular practice or sport being critical of indigenous peoples that have done it and that are still doing it right. You don't see advocacy groups like getting pissed off at native Americans that still go out and hunt deers or people in South America or wherever, where they're, those life ways are still intact and just part of what they do. It seems that the vitriol that uh, is shared is largely around Westerners and hunting. And I wonder how much of that is because of the way they do it or just that um, there's animosity toward those groups of people for other reasons. And they just kind of throw that in there. You know what I mean? Yeah. Honestly, I think there's a lot of unconscious people everywhere and shadow shows up everywhere and hunting is no different. So if you have, let's just say, a, a pretty large percentage of the population of Westerners are, for no fault of their own necessarily, you know, not as conscious, then that's going to show up in hunting as well. And because of what we've already talked about, it's just so, it just shows up in hunting in a way that is ugly to people who don't hunt because it's an animal that looks and behaves like us in some ways and it's off-putting for that reason. But there's very unconscious ways that people do many other things, working out, for example. But people don't necessarily, well, these days people find a way to judge and (laughs) fight and have issues with everything. Troll's gonna troll. Yeah, but I think that there's, it's not, I don't think it's, specific to hunting. I just think that shadow shows up in a lot of ways and the civilization that we're currently in, the paradigm that we're in creates a lot of trauma and that trauma shows up as egoic shadow relationship to hunting. Um, as it pertains to your, the second part that you were talking about with What was the second? 
Well, how certain sects of people that are more so indigenous and ah. living their natural life way yes. don't seem to get any shit. Yeah. And maybe that's just because they've been so fucked over you know, throughout right. the past few thousand years or so that people are like, leave them alone. Like yeah. they've already had their lands devastated and their, their cultures and traditions and religions and all of that robbed of them, which is of course horrific. But it's like, I think that hunter-gatherer people, the very few that still are, as you alluded to earlier, are, despite the fact that they don't have a big screen TV and a Porsche, much more functional and, and happier people. Yeah. Right? And so they kind of get left alone in the hunting conversation and the uh, the aggression and anger toward hunters is is more pointed at maybe someone like you or someone like me. Like, how dare you go hunt? You're... American white boy, like you've got to be doing it wrong or doing it in a way that is um, unconscious and yeah. shouldn't be allowed or, you know, whatever. Yeah. That, I'm glad you stimulated that thought. So a lot of indigenous cultures that still hunt, they, most of them are very either poor or they're kind of marginalized and for that reason, I think they get a lot of leeway and people really don't go after them. But even more interesting is that if you watch them hunt, uh, generally it makes me cringe because they it's a luxury to be respectful and reverent when killing an animal. When you're just trying to eat, like many of these humans are, and I have a great story about the Hadza who do that, they just get the job done. And this is a baboon tooth. So my friend, Anthony Gustin, just went to Tanzania and he spent two weeks with the Hadza people. Hadza are some of the only hunter-gatherers that still exist. And they have to go into the forest to hunt for baboons. And when he sent me the video of them hunting the baboons, I saw dogs that were severely undernourished. So their, their, their dogs are used to hunt the baboons, find the baboons similar to the bears that you mentioned. So the dogs chase after the baboon, the baboon is in the tree and then they're firing, you know, multiple arrows at it with poison. And the whole video makes me cringe. And, but they have their, their own process and they are doing the best that they can with what they've been given. And, you know, I'm, I, like I said, it's a luxury to be very intentional, very reverent to have the kind of abundance and resources that I have to take my time and not relate to hunting in the same way that they do. I think there's something to the the brutality in the nature of the way humans hunt too, based on how normalized it, it is, how normalized it is for you based on early experiences. You know, I think about just the intensity of the hunt that we did and my one successful kill, uh, and even, you know, gutting the animal, skinning the animal, quartering the animal. I mean, a 150-pound boar hanging there in front of me is 
Actually, to be honest, it was way more normal and kind of not a big deal than I thought it would be. I thought I'd like throw up or something. Like, what? I don't even like touching hamburger meat. Like, I'm totally <laughs> grossed out by the whole process, which shows you how disconnected I am. But I've often thought, you know, like my dad, for example, started hunting so young and he's not obviously a hunter gatherer, uh, uh, you know, a person, but it's like if we had all been raised in, in nature, going back thousands of years, from the very time you were nursing on your mom's teeth, you would have seen chickens getting their head cut. There'd be guts everywhere and fish being cleaned and animals being dragged in by a rope. And it'd just be constant carnage uh, from hunts. And you would, that would just be something you were totally used to. I think perhaps for us and why I thought I would be so freaked out is our introduction to the death of animals and, and specifically what it looks like on the inside of a living being. The only way I know that is from horror movies. It's always associated with major trauma and evil and horror and darkness. It's not something that we've been used to, you know? So perhaps for these, these tribal folks hunting these baboons and doing it in a way that you're going like, ow, harsh, brutal. Like, why are you guys doing it in such a messed up way? If, if that's the way they've been doing it since therefore, that's just normal. That animal doesn't have, they don't have a relationship with that animal like we would. And perhaps if they've never watched cartoons and had TV and um, stuffed animals as kids and having this sense that animals are exactly the same as us, um, you can see why perhaps that appears more brutal to us and why to someone like me, even just cleaning an animal would have seemed totally brutal really in, until I did it. You know, it's like that, um, that, that relationship we have is formed so young that if you enter into the game later, you've already been pre-programmed with a different interpretation of what that experience means. Yeah. And you see that even with hunters in the United States. And I think that's where a lot of them get a bad reputation is they've just been doing it their whole life. And Perhaps that's why I'm so lucky that I came to it much later in my life, because similar to you, I have all those reactions and those reactions are not wrong, but they allow me to approach my work and speak to people in a way that resonates with them, that opens them up to experiencing this. You know, if it was... Someone who has been hunting their whole life, whether it's an American here or someone in the Hadza tribe, they aren't going to have the words and connection piece that a lot of people in the cities that are desperately needing this connection are going to be able to understand and feel connected to and resonate with. Because I'm sure you had many opportunities to hunt, but there's something that I said, there's something about the way that I said it that you resonated with because there's common ground between the, you know, the, the way that I respond to seeing the Hadza hunting and the way that you respond to perhaps seeing your, your father hunt when he was younger. Yeah, very much so. Yeah. I asked my dad one time, so I was just so curious about his, just how many animals he's taken down in his life. I mean, he spent 30 years hunting nonstop, you know? And I was interviewing him, actually. I, I interviewed him. I, I could just release it as a podcast, but there's probably too many personal family details. But it was just kind of an interview for posterity just to get his life story and the family lineage. And one of the questions I asked him when he started hunting, I said, Dad, have you ever, when you shoot an animal, do you ever 
like cry or feel guilty? Or even when you were a kid, did you, did you feel bad in any way? And he just, he looked at me like, what are you talking about? It it didn't even compute to him in, in, in that way, because it was just so natural to him. And, and, um, and I, you know, he's never been someone who's destructive to the environment or he's not an unconscious person. He's just someone who, uh, for whom hunting was very normal and it's just a way of life. It's what you do when you live in the mountains in Colorado, but he didn't have the kind of visceral experience that we have. And you're right. That, that was what piqued my interest was having known you before knowing you to be a really caring uh, conscious person. And then when you told me about your new venture, it was like when you hear about a medicine journey coming up and you're like, shit, oh, man, I don't want to do this, but I feel called. There's a reason I'm supposed to do this. And that's the, that's the sense that I had. Uh, do you think that people, where do you think the hierarchical system people build for killing and eating things comes from? If someone, you know, say is a vegetarian or a vegan and they're like, eh, if a few grasshoppers had to die so I can get my salad, whatever, grasshopper's life is perhaps less valuable than a baboon. And likewise, someone would be happy to eat chicken or fish, but would never want to eat bison. Where do you think that bias comes from? It comes directly from how close an animal or plant or being looks and acts like us. And I think the deeper component to that is the more something looks like us, the more it reminds us of our own mortality. Because most indigenous lifeways consider plants to be sacred, rocks to be sacred, like even things that are not alive, like rocks are sacred. The Dagara people in West Africa, I think I told this story to you, they believe that plants are the most intelligent beings, animals are the second most intelligent beings, and humans are the third most intelligent (laughs) beings. Based on how we treat our home planet, I would have to agree. And the humans have to go to the plants and the animals to learn from them in order to be in right relationship with their mission. So most indigenous people consider like all living things to be part of this one organism that is the earth, that's Gaia. And we, we create this hierarchy instead, in my judgment, a lot of that has to do with how little we want to look at our own mortality and how scared we are of the truth that we're going to die, how scared we are of the, the, the potential that we might die without ever having lived, without ever having followed our dharma, without ever having fully expressed ourselves, being fully authentic, living fully. That is a huge motivation in my judgment. Tell me about the six years that you've spent with your Native American uh, teacher. How did that come about and how has that informed the work you're doing? Well, speaking to that, much of my relationship with indigenous cultures and the lens in which I see my life and the world that we're living comes through his teachings, but his mentorship, kind of cajoling, guiding uh, towards certain resources or certain 
ways of being. And the, the simple answer to your question is, I don't know what drew me there, but something definitely was calling me there at a very young age. I was in college, was 22 years old and friends were going out partying Friday nights and I was staying in so that I could go the next morning, Saturday morning, all the way out to Wimberley to do a sweat lodge and to spend time with him and other elders. And at that point, I was not at a level of consciousness that I could even have a mentorship relationship with him. I was really just showing up for the sweat lodge and just kind of looking at him and nodding my head and kind of letting whatever he was saying bounce off me. But there's something to masculine being drawn towards certain energetic and certain embodiment. And he definitely embodied a wise elder, like energetic that I was drawn to. And like, if someone asked me, why am I spending time with him, with Will, Will Tegel, I would not have had a good answer for it. I would have just have said, I don't know, seems, feels good. And so I kept listening to that calling and he would bring so much indigenous wisdom into the experiences of the sweat lodge. He would bring up books, he would bring up concepts, things that I never heard before that kind of seeded themselves in my psyche at a very young and pivotal time in my life. As I started to grow, after I came out of prison, after I had some of these plant medicine experiences and I went hunting, he was incredibly pivotal in helping me to integrate those experiences and helping me to realize the bigger picture, helping me to see that those experiences were not just isolated events in my life, but they were part of a path. And you know, one of the things he told me very early on was the plants chose you. And what he meant by that was when I went and I did ayahuasca and I had all of the the visions and the powerful experience with higher power and all of that, it was the plant's way, another quote of his, earth is healing through me. So the plants were bringing me to speak a language you can understand, speak a language that other humans can understand, that would bring a certain message that was important. A small message in a small corner of the universe, but important nonetheless. And the plants wanted it to come through me. And so he really encouraged that. And I would say the biggest thing that I've learned from him is is really not intellectually, but really feeling the connection to plants and animals in that way. The fact that a teacher could share with me that plants have consciousness, that they're choosing me to do things, right? That's a pretty pretty far-fetched, especially because, you know, when I met you, I was very materialist, you know, very like what is of the world is what exists. Yeah. You know, I was a biohacker. I was into nootropics. I still am. All those things are great. But I hadn't tapped into that kind of other world. And he very much brought me into that 
with his with his teachings. And you know, I have I have I'll give you a few examples. So I have a snake, a Texas hognose snake, and that animal is a way for me to connect to the oversoul of the snakes, all snakes, and specifically to have a relationship with the rattlesnake because we go out and we hunt where there are rattlesnakes. And so I want a relationship with the rattlesnake to say, hey, give me wide berth. I'll give you wide berth. Let's have a partnership here. And that was through his suggestions and his yeah, recommendations. And so a lot of my relationships with plants and animals and the way that I talk about them, the way that I create, you know, personification with them comes from his influence. Is that what led to the many intermittent ceremonies that we had during our, our four day hunt? You know, there was the praying over our weapons and there was using sacred tobacco. And uh, ultimately on one of the days, a very surprisingly potent brew of of psilocybin. Uh, There was definitely, I mean, it was very ceremonial. Everything about it, there was a lot of stopping. Okay, now before we do this, we're going to do this and then onto the thing and then a a wrap up sort of ceremony. And there was a lot of that baked in, which I really loved because it helped me to um, really integrate the experience as it was going. It wasn't because a lot of those happens fast, especially for someone like me that's just not had that type of experience. It was really good to be able to really be intentional about it in all ways. Is that where that kind of piece came in and some of the tools you use and the shamanic nature of the experience? Yeah, the shamanic nature for sure uh, was influenced by him. I think the, the, the crux of what was influenced by him was the magnitude of the intentionality. He has such a high level of intentionality that he incorporates in almost all areas of his life. We'll go on a walk. We'll walk by a cedar tree and he'll take a berry and he'll say a little prayer and he'll kind of have a relationship with each and with some of the individual trees. That's just while we're walking. Right. And so he's bringing that kind of intentionality into his daily life. And that offers me a, almost a, a, a guidepost for what can show up, what relationships I can have if I bring that same level of intentionality into my daily life, but especially something, the magnitude of hunting. And so the big picture definitely came from him, but I have so much interest and reverence for indigenous cultures. So I'm constantly picking parts and pieces and learning from others and trying to, to, you know, as Boyd Vardy says, I'm an artist of experience and it really is art that I'm, you know, stealing from other people and putting together as my own. Uh, With the psilocybin piece that came in the middle of our trip, a, whatever you did with the lemon juice uh, was really interesting because they were much stronger than I expected, came on very fast. And then when it subsided, um, I was back to 
normal. I mean, I consider being on medicine normal, actually. This is abnormal in one way, but uh, that was an interesting part of it. But uh, was that, was bringing in the kind of medicine experience something that you glean from other um, indigenous cultures as part of their hunting ritual? I mean, I imagine in South America, they're doing combo frog before they go out. I mean, it's not psychoactive, but just as, as a natural kind of medicine to heighten their senses for a hunt. Are there, are there other cultures that you're aware of that have integrated the use of entheogenic substances as part of the hunting ritual? And is that where you um, got that idea from? Well, so yes, to answer your question, yes, there's, many cultures in the Amazon basin that will use psychedelics for hunting magic is what they call it. And they will use the, like ayahuasca, for example, in order to see and connect with the animals in order to more readily hunt them. And so it shows up all over the world, utilization of plant medicines, on the hunt specifically. A big part of it for me was my own experience. I mentioned these three experiences of ayahuasca and hunting that were in close proximity. So I took three months, what took me three months and accidentally and compressed it into a weekend because my judgment is most indigenous people, they don't really need a strong dose of medicine in order to realize what they're doing with a hunt. They are constantly in relationship with the land from a very young age. And so there's a constant level of, of, of reverence that comes with that. But we are so disconnected from ourselves, from our emotions, our feelings, et cetera, that it takes something really strong like a plant medicine to essentially pin us down and keep our eyes open to see what it is that we're doing. And that's what it took for me. It took the ayahuasca to show me you are taking an animal that is alive, that has a family, that has emotions, that has feelings and sensations and pain, and you're taking its life in order to, uh, to, to live. And so it's a powerful tool for people who participate in hunting to have context for what it is that they have done or will do in that experience. Yeah, in my case, it was uh, have done because it was the day after I had uh, the successful mission. And um, yeah, what a, what a wild um, ride to be out in, in nature in such a remote place and to really get to work with death and reconcile that in that space of surprisingly potent medicine. I was kind of expecting a little above a microdose and just, you know, go inner interface with nature. And my intention was to really connect with this land here in Texas and really um, offer myself to it in service and, um, and to discover what it, it holds for me and why I was drawn here. And, uh, and I got that and so much more, but one of the big pieces was really around really around the death and my own fake mortality, uh, you know, meaning that this body is going to go, but that, that I don't go. And in the context of having just killed something and 
having no desire or means by which to bypass the gravity of that experience um, was really powerful. And I think it would have been, um, I mean, you know, you get what you're supposed to get, but it would have been a totally different experience if I didn't have that punctuation point of like, okay, let's not just breeze past what you just did and what just happened, but really to be able to go in there. And, and also that morning, I think you know the story, but for those that don't, uh, I went out as just one of the, you know, the uh, co-hunters without hunting because I had already had a successful shot um, going out with my friend David. And and (laughs) we stumbled upon what appeared to be just a few wild pigs. And then I I stepped back and let uh, Josh, the other guide, and David go into this kind of gully that was uh, at the at the base of a pretty substantial kind of rocky cliff. And uh, we heard them in there, you know, doing their pig noises and, sh- you know, very Elmer Fudd, slow approach, you know, be very, very, very quiet. And I just laid back in the cut uh, as to not disturb the, the process. And um, and next thing you know, I hear a shot, boom. And then I see pigs just scurrying all over this rock face. I mean, I even, they were like goats. I couldn't believe that they were walking on these little crevices and stuff, just going every which direction. And then I see David and Josh come running out toward me and a bunch of pigs running right at me. And for those listening, uh, wild boars would be quite dangerous uh, when they're threatened. And then Josh comes out with his nine millimeter pointed right in my direction. I... The pigs are in between the two guns and me. So I get my ass out of the way. And then more shots are fired. It's just pig pandemonium <laughs> out there. And uh, and really the hardest part of the, the trip for me was this, was that my friend David hit a pig up on the hill. Because they when they approached this kind of gully, they thought they were going to be on top of them. And it turns out they were up above them. So it was just this total surprise. And there were way more of them than they thought. But... He had hit the pig, you know, in the gut or something, and it and it fell off a couple steps and then took off. And then another one got hit in the face with a pistol. Now, but I didn't see that. I just saw, I heard the shots and saw the pigs running everywhere. And I was like, ah, oh, this is what I didn't want to happen, you know? And and then that afternoon was the journey on the, the mushroom lemonade. <laughs> um, and man, that was, ooh, that was an edge there. That was, that was tough. Because I was very, we were very near where that had taken place. And I'm just thinking, I'm there on mushrooms, reconciling death, reconciling my role in that death, my own death, all of that really deep work, and sensing that both or either of those pigs were somewhere nearby suffering and could be suffering for a very long time with an injury that then becomes an infection and like really going down the rabbit hole on that. And that was, that was really the hardest, um, the hardest part of it for me. And, um, and I started ceremony by walking us through a meditation to feel that I focused on that. I focused on the gravity of what it meant for us to be sitting there knowing that there was an animal that had been shot. Right. And that was suffering. Yeah. And the reconciliation that so ensued around that would probably take too long to unpack, but it essentially evolved into, ah, this is so hard to, it's so hard to explain in a way that doesn't sound like making an excuse for it or bypassing it, but that a ultimately death 
is a fallacy, including my own, because the life force that animates all living things can't be killed. It just kind of switches, switches matter. It goes between non-matter and matter and takes form and moves on. And all of that is kind of within this karmic wheel of when and how that happens. And that was, okay, I'm working through that. But then what about the ones that didn't die? And the karma that could be inherent to that on my part as being a participant in that particular hunt and the, and the two that made the attempt kills and didn't make it. And then somehow by the end of that, it was sort of resolved in that our relationship with those animals and our communication and the way we're doing it, it's like it was part of the karma of the entire experience that things happen exactly the way they were supposed to happen, despite the fact that from my perspective, something bad or wrong happened, right? That perhaps in some way, in a universally karmic effect, those pigs were where we were at that particular time for a reason Mm -hmm. that I don't know and will never know or understand, but that somehow it was all okay and part of the way things go in nature. Sometimes... You know, an animal takes a bite out of something and it gets away and probably goes off and suffers. And, and someday my ass is going to be underground and something's going to be eating me, you know, going back to that kind of cycle. But man, what a, what a potentiator of that experience that medicine was. And I don't know that I would have been able to go that deep or have the courage or bandwidth to face some of that discomfort without the assistance of the, uh, the magic lemonade. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's something I call death medicine, which comes through in so many different ways for different people, whether it's connecting to the death of a, a loved one or connecting to the killer archetype or in your case, like relationship with death. It's it's super powerful and, and very potent in and of itself. And I... Again, there's a certain level of, of, one might call it rationalization, but we're meaning-making machines. So another way of putting it is we're, we're, we're creating meaning in a world that we, we're trying to make our way in, right? And, and I think that's ultimately a, a better way of, of framing it for me and the meaning that I make from you know, wounding animals. I totally hear your perspective and I, I see it as lessons intended for us. He, that, that was a sac, the animal sacrificed its life for us in certain ways to have food, to have a certain experience. And sometimes the animal will take a wounding for us to have a different, more visceral experience. And we're speaking in, in different ways, but I, I know that the best outcome that could happen from wounding an animal, as unfortunate as that is, is that you have the deep insights that you have. And David has the deep insights that he had because Ultimately, the work that I'm doing is is meant to up-level our consciousness. And 
we can take <laughs> the meat away from an experience, which is powerful, and it honors the animal. But we could also take the lessons, and we all could also take the consciousness from a dead animal or a wounded animal. And I'm glad that you you both had. Yeah, it was uh, it was some it was some definite um, a definite shadow stuff to explore. And um, you know, luckily I was able and willing to to go there and examine it from every side and and not try to wiggle out of any feelings of guilt or shame or suffering that might have shown up. And there was a I worked through a lot of that stuff, a lot of it from different different angles. And as you said, really I think what you're doing is so unique in that it presents a very, at least for most of us, a guy like me, a very different way to really go deep within oneself and find meaning and find reconciliation with the way things are. Right. And I think that was one of the big takeaways, especially from that journey was even though there was some sadness, there was some guilt, there was, ah, God, I wish it would have happened like this. And, you know, a, a decent sense of regret. There was also just this feeling that this is all how it's supposed to be. This is, that's what kept coming to me. Like the medicine kept saying, this is nature. This is natural. This is the way it is. Stop fighting it. You know what I mean? This is, this is the game that we're, we're a part of here as beings that come in and out of form as consciousness that expresses itself and the multitudes of ways in which it does express itself. And for me to have such a finite and limited perspective based on my emotions was really interesting to work through and to just broaden and broaden and broaden my perspective. And also, um, of course, like medicine journeys tend to do to minimize the self-importance of you, not to, not to negate the repercussions of your behavior, but to just zoom out enough to go, dude, you're not that important, right? This moment is not that important. Nothing's that important. It's all just fleeting uh, in this thing that we call time. So yeah, um, really, really incredible experience. Uh, that's, I, that's, it's one yeah. of the reasons why it's, there's so much value in, in hunting as a practice. It's not the thing. It's one of the embodiment practices that gets paired with, you know, medicine work and things like that, that provides so much value because it's one thing to meditate at home and sitting on a cushion. It's another thing to be mindful out in the world. It's one thing to do, you know, plant medicines and look inward. It's another thing to look at what's real in a death, the food that you eat kind of relationship, which with com which comes with hunting. So yeah, it's, it's, I was speaking with Allison about it and she was like, that is so much for you to handle. And I was like, yes, I'm glad that you see that. It's a lot of different things that come <laughs> and interweave together. Yeah. I can tell you one thing, um, guiding a pig while you're still relatively uh, on mushrooms is a wild experience especially if you're someone that doesn't even like touch hamburger yeah really really uh, deeply meaningful experience and i and i thank you for that um what else did i want to touch on before we go i feel like i it's just such a this whole thing is just such a deep topic and there's so many ways that you can go about it i really i'm enjoying the conversation but uh i guess in the interest of time 
we should wrap it up. I guess I want to ask you, where do you see this going? You know, I mean, you have this extremely narrow niche, as far as I'm aware of, in the way that you're presenting this opportunity for men. Uh, Do you see this as being something, for lack of a better term, as being scalable or something that other people could adopt in their own um, practice of sacred hunting? Is this going to be something that could become a bigger thing? And is it something that you think even women might have any interest in participating in, even though historically um, they've done a little bit, as far as I understand, a little bit less of the hunting in terms of, you know, ancient humans? Yeah, I mean... (laughs) My my friends will tell you I have big visions, so definitely have a big vision for sacred hunting. And part of that is democratizing the sacred part of the experience. I want this to be more of a movement than I want it to be about me. I want to empower people to have this experience themselves and whether it be a one-time experience, as many people desire it to be, kind of a going from zero to one type of experience or whether it's a lifelong practice. I want to empower them to bring sacredness into their hunting practice because it is such an important element of, of, or it's such a drastic action to be taking to kill an animal. So bring the sacred into that act, Uh, but use it as a gateway to a completely new way of being in relationship with each other, because it opens up a whole portal. What if everything in your life can be sacred? What if the sacred can start to really permeate all aspects of your being? That is a whole nother relationship. That's what indigenous people have had, right? Everything was sacred to them. Mm -hmm. And so I want to really empower people to start using this as a gateway for that and using it as a gateway to be more mindful and connected to their food, using it as a gateway for men, especially to be more connected to their masculinity, to integrate some of the the things that are currently considered to be toxic and turn them into a healthy manifestation that serves the world, serves their partners, the community, et cetera. So there's a lot of interpersonal, uh, what I would consider ways of being that I hope sacred hunting can support people in when it comes to like nuts and bolts of what it actually looks like. I'm working to create a church organization around sacred hunting and the there's a whole process to do that but once i have some uh church status which reflects the historic context of what i'm doing it is probably the oldest thing known to man and pre-man then there there becomes an opportunity to start um relating to land in ways that are really high in my my vision. And what I mean by that is having land that I'm in relationship with. I, I really hesitate to use the word own or manage or anything like that, but I am partnering with land. And, and I hope to uh, be partnering with thousands and thousands of acres of land that I can create a model of, of harmony that gets spread to others, that gets codified in some way that other people can use and create a type of Eden 
on these properties, on these pieces of, of the earth that inspire other people and, and help to heal other people. And do you, uh, do you ever have women inquiring, uh, wanting to participate in this? And if so, is that something you would feel comfortable to do? And would you, do you envision if that happened that you would have like segregated groups or mixed groups or so or is there even a, a demand for that at this point? There's a lot of women who reach out and ask about it, but when it comes to actually taking the plunge and committing to an experience, I've had uh, not as many people do that. I finally had our first woman who committed. And uh, so I have a co-ed experience that's in October. So there's some men, there'll be some women, and that will be the first one where women will be participants. And I welcome women to the practice. I, uh, I don't think this is just for men. I don't think it's just healing for masculinity or anything like that. Um, I find that one is very much reflective of my journey. So what I create is very reflective of like what I needed as a rite of passage. And two, it's something that many men are drawn to for whatever reason, historic, whatever. Uh, but I would love to, to serve women in the, the consciousness that I'm exploring. Uh, what do uh, the good old boy kind of traditional Texas hunters think of what you're doing? You know, at first, there's hesitation because I, and skepticism because I don't speak in the same way. I have all kinds of rules that are foreign to them, like around taking certain kind of pictures and saying certain kind of things and like drinking alcohol and stuff like that. There's just a certain way that I create the container uh, that feels true for me that is super foreign to them. But over time, they have very much come around because they realize I'm bringing dozens of men who have never hunted before into the practice. I'm very intentional with what I'm doing. You know, a lot of the men who, the good old boys who are guides, who are really like committed to hunting as a, as a life's path, even if it looks different to me, they deal with hunters who come out on the weekend they just want to kill an animal to mount it on the wall and they tell, you know, these guys, Hey, you do all the grunt work. And so when I come and I bring the guys that I bring, they really enjoy that. I have men who decide they're going to carry the animal back, even though there's a truck, because that's part of their experience because they want to put in that effort and sacrifice in order to bring this animal back. They want to gut the animal. They want to learn how to do it. They want to go through the whole process themselves. So they have come around to, to seeing, you know, the beauty in it, even if we don't always speak the same language and we definitely don't always see eye to eye in terms of, you know, certain things that they want me to do that I won't do and certain things that I don't want them to do that they will do. Uh, and, you know, I'm, I'm blessed that I now bring my own hunting guides that speak my language, so to speak on the, on the hunts, um, have a, a great, great man raised on the Navajo way. Who's, who's coming to facilitate hunting and another friend who's been on sacred hunting trip as well. Um, but yeah, a lot of the good old boys 
they're uh, they're warming up to me, but it's slow. I imagine so. One thing that I find interesting about um, hunters that a lot of people probably don't realize, maybe you could speak to this briefly, is that generally speaking, regardless of whether hunters are approaching this in a reverent way as you, uh, they know a lot about conservationism and and the environment and care about the environment a lot more than I think people would guess. Has that been your experience? 100%. And are perhaps maybe even in some cases more connected and reverent of the environment than environmentalists that carry signs around in the city. Not all of them, but very much, very much so. And, you know, it's not commonly known. It's hunters will shout this from the rooftops, but hunters go a long way in conservation efforts. Like a lot of the land that's conserved is conserved for hunting. A lot of the money that goes into preserving wild places comes from Ducks Unlimited, Wild, you know, Sheep Foundation, Elk Foundations. So it's a bunch of organizations that are made up of people who generally hunt these animals and they want to see them thrive and they want to see them thrive for their kids. And so they invest heavily and there's certain legal structures that are set up like laws that take sales from licenses guns, ammunition, et cetera, and take billions of dollars from from hunters' expenditures and go towards conservation. And so uh, most good hunters are conservationists. And if you look back at, you know, quotes from Theodore Roosevelt and Aldo Leopold and some of the 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 great conservationists, even Thoreau and things like that, they they all talked about the connection between the hunter and the conservation ethos. And it's it is a uniquely American thing. It happens in individuals across the world, but it is uniquely very strong in the United States. Oh, interesting. And Canada. I'm glad, I'm glad I remember to touch on that, you know, cause I'm thinking back to my childhood with my dad and like, I don't remember him or anyone in our clan ever just throwing beer cans on the ground, you know, like no one littered, you cleaned up after yourself, you put the camp kind of back intact where you slept and, and all of that kind of stuff. There was definitely like a respect for, um, the land more so than a lot of other people I've hung around with in my life, you know? So that's, um, that's a really good point for people to know. Well, uh, I think that does it, my friend. Uh, We've got our blessed crystal here keeping us company. It's been a great conversation, great energy. I feel just so um, at ease with you. It's always just great sitting down and hanging. We always have a lot of fun and um, happy to share, you know, your message with the world. It's definitely a different topic than I would normally cover. And when I was kind of like, oh man, do I really want to go here and take whatever heat one could take? But uh, I trust that we've had as open and conscious conversation as we can about something that could be potentially triggering for, for some. Mm-hmm. Um, and I understand, I understand that. Um, if someone wanted to come join you on one of your excursions, how does that happen? What's your website, social media, and all that business? Just visit sacredhunting.com and it'll give you full rundown. Just have people go through kind of a brief application process. And then I, I speak with everybody um, on on a Zoom call just to kind of connect with them and would love to have 
anyone who feels called to join and I'm pretty active on, on uh, Instagram in particular as well. So at Monsel Denton, I'm sure I'll be tagged in yes. all kinds of stuff that yes. you're, you're doing and I'll tag you as well. So, all right. And uh, my last question to you is who are three teachers or teachings that have influenced your life and work that you'd like to share with us? Mm. One is we talked about Will Tegel by the name of Starheart. And he had a very specific background, but one of the things that I've learned a lot from him about is uh, what's called council, inner council theory, which is essentially acknowledging that when we have any decision in our life, anything that happens in our life, we have an inner council where some parts of us might feel uh, happy about it. Some parts might feel sad. Some parts might feel a different way. And so just reconciling the fact that we are, there's not, there might be one person who's holding the microphone in our own psyche but there are many parts of ourselves and it's our job to listen to all of the parts of ourself and, and, and be supportive of the needs of those, those parts. That'd be one. Uh, two would be Paul check who I've had a very short relationship with him, but he has brought to my awareness, um, a connection to, uh, a historic figure by the name of Quanta Parker. And I did a podcast with him where he stopped me mid podcast. He said, who's the picture on the wall next to you? I told him who it was. And he just went off for five minutes about how this entity knows who I am and is sending a beam of light to my heart chakra. And I need to do this and I need to connect with him and all these other things. And I did, I connected with him through, you know, some combo ceremonies and some other things. And, uh, yeah, you know, spirit animals are important to me, but also having the spirit guides of other, you know, people is, is important. And, uh, and so Paul opening that relationship to Quanta Parker is, is, uh, was very important to me. And that would bring me to the third, uh, very, very important, perhaps one of the most important relationships that I have is with Quanta Parker. And who and, is this uh, Quanta Parker? So he was the, he was the last chief of the Comanche tribe. Oh, okay. And he was half white, half indigenous. So he was this kind of half breed like me where he was a bridge between worlds. He was a bridge between an indigenous way of life because his mother was was white. And so he was raised as a Comanche boy and he became he rose to prominence and became a, a well-respected chief. But when the Comanche were clearly not going to win the war against the United States Army, he came on the reservation and he became a very successful uh, rancher, cattleman in the white man's world, so to speak. So he kind of was able to bridge these two and uh, he just embodied so much courage and wisdom. He, he later uh, moved into a relationship with peyote and the native American church. He was pretty instrumental in creating uh, the foundation of the native American oh, church. Wow. And he 
this is a story that Will shared with me. I'll end on a final story. Kwana Parker, when he was on the reservation, he was one of the only chiefs that presidents of the United States visited. So any other chief, if they wanted to meet with the president of the United States, they went to Washington, D.C. Well, when Kwana Parker met with Theodore Roosevelt, Roosevelt came out to Oklahoma on the reservation with a a whole entourage of Anglo-American politicians, wealthy people, et cetera. And Kwana Parker led them on a hunt. He led them on this hunt that was done in the Comanche way with the Comanche indigenous traditions and things like that. And it was what will reminds me, one of the first sacred hunts where uh, a half breed person takes Anglo people through an indigenous rite of passage of hunting. Wow. That's a crazy story. That's cool. Mm -hmm. I wish he would have given him peyote. (laughs) Give it to, all the politicians, maybe something stronger. Give them all bufo. That's what I say. You really want to change the world. Put it, put that in the chemtrail plans. All right, my friend. Uh, thank you very much for coming by. And thanks for creating such a unique offering for people at a time when we really need, in my opinion, an experience connection to, to the land and the natural ways that we've lost. Yeah. Thank you, so, brother. Yeah, thank you for your work. Much appreciated. And I look forward to... Uh, sharing a a delicious wild meal with you soon. Absolutely, brother. I look forward to it too. Thank Thank you so much for joining me on this wild ride. And I hope that it blessed you with a deeper understanding of the human experience and the ways in which we interface with nature, because frankly, nature is what you are. I'd also like to invite you to join me this Friday for another solo cast Q&A show where I discuss a myriad of topics, including natural pain relief, structured water, non-toxic cookware, top brain function hacks, and more. That's this Friday on the Lifestylist Podcast. I'd also like to thank our sponsors. If you want to get your chill on, I suggest you get your hands on some kava over at gettruekava.com. That's T-R-U, get T-R-U, gettruekava.com. And the discount code there is Luke20, and that saves you 20%. You can also go to bodybio.com. Get your hands on some of their great brain supplements. And there you can use the code, guess what, Luke20 to save 20% off there at bodybio.com. And finally, our friends over at justthrivehealth.com slash Luke, where you can get some spore-based probiotic and immune system support products, etc. I'm extremely grateful to our sponsors and for those of you that support them. And if you're not someone who wants to support the show by spending money, that's great too. Just text, email, social media post the episodes that speak to you and help spread the word. And I want to thank you for getting us through another episode of the Lifestylist Podcast. Podcast.